0: The year is 1422. In a yard outside the Inns of Court in central London, rival factions split along lines of allegiance as their leaders, the 3rd Duke of York, Richard Plantagenet, and the Lancastrian Edmund Beaufort, the 2nd Duke of Somerset, quarrel. York's supporters gather around, plucking white roses from the bushes to signify their fealty to their liege. Somerset supporters pluck red roses. As the two sides square off, they are unaware that they are already wading into the bloody battle that will soon take over the whole of the nation, leaving its imprint on the English landscape and transforming the monarchy and the notion of divine right of kings forever. The Wars of the Roses have begun. Except that never happened. It's a scene made famous by Shakespeare in Henry VI, part one, act two, scene four to be specific. But like so many of the scenes that populate Shakespeare's histories, It is an embellishment, written generations after the fact, clouded by Tudor propaganda and the need to paint the sitting monarch, Queen Elizabeth's ancestors, in the best possible light. Such is the power of Shakespeare's words, however, that fact has become so clouded by fiction, it's often quite difficult for even the most studious and unbiased historian to tease the two apart. What were the Wars of the Roses? At the core, it was a long dynastic battle between warring factions who each had a strong claim to the throne of England, And we say wars, plural, because it was actually a series of skirmishes and not one big battle, lasting roughly 30 years from 1455 to 1485. But its roots can be traced back to the death of Edward III in 1377, when the crown skipped a generation and left Edward's living sons in a lurch while his grandson assumed the throne. That span of more than 200 years of history, from 1377 and the Seeds of Unrest through to the 1590s when Shakespeare wrote his famous minor tetralogy, is more than enough time for legends to appear, and the more than 400 years since Shakespeare wrote it has been more than enough time for legends to become accepted fact. But who was Henry Bolingbroke, or Henry Hotspur? Are we right to view Henry V as the impetuous prince-turned-prodigal son, the great warrior-king and battlefield orator as portrayed by Shakespeare? Was Henry VI truly as inept a ruler as he is popularly imagined? And was Richard III truly a hunchbacked murderer who killed his nephews in the Tower of London in 1483? Who, in all this mess, was the true and rightful heir to the English throne?
1: Since brevity is the soul of wit...
0: More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo? Wherefore art thou Romeo?
1: To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward, an infinite and endless liar, an hourly promise breaker, the owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertainment. i beat thee, but I should infect my hand.
0: The lady doth protest too much, Methinks.
1: Course of true love never did run smooth.
0: Oh, fuck <laughs> <off>. <laughs> this is what I have to do in class when my kids make me laugh and I have to teach. I'm like fuck, no So what's the deal with the Wars of the Roses? That's the question we'll be looking at today as we attempt to piece together some semblance of truth from the fragments of fiction. Right, Aiden?
1: That's right, Lindsay. Uh, that is our goal. And uh, I, that was a very well done introduction, Lindsay. I Thank you. I think you laid you. it all out there. I think we can just pack Aww. up the pack up the bags and go. Uh, except there's a few niggling points that I think we'll have to discuss in further detail. Um, but I want to just give the listener a little reassurance. History, maybe it's not your thing. Maybe, you know, warring houses and all this stuff doesn't really do it for you. Um, unless, of course, you're one of the tens of millions of fans of uh, the HBO series. Game of Thrones, uh, oh. in the associated book of which Lindsay obviously were gonna bring this up. is a giant fan. Lindsay loves Game of Thrones. She loves uh, Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, she just can't get enough of them. Uh, I am being very sarcastic because I'm Lindsay's shaking eyes my are head at you yes, right now. Yeah, she's shooting ice daggers. It's
0: not me. that I don't like Game of Thrones. It's just I've never watched it because violence does not sit well with me, <laughs> and the violence in Game of Thrones. Visually uh, depicted violence. I just, I just can't. I just can't do it. Okay,
1: well that's fine because you've already read all about it. Because, uh, in for those of you who may be fans of the show but not fans of history, uh, Game of Thrones is based on the War of the Roses. Uh, the Lannisters and the Starks came from Lancastrians and Yorks. So it wasn't really a big stretch. Uh, George R. R. Martin uh, has famously referenced uh this multiple times and he has that, He actually
0: come out and said like he actually yeah, based it on Yeah, it was on, based on the word. Really? Yeah, a couple the of, times Wars he of said
1: the roses. That. Yeah. Um I mean m- amongst other things and the politics of Westeros don't quite match up with well, the and, kingship of And there of England. were no
0: dragons or no. maybe some incest. In... Yeah, there
1: were some hints of incest at least, <laughs> and uh, definitely some backstabbing in, England. in the English, in the yes. real history. So, um, some of the drama is the same, but there's uh, it's less fantastic. So, and are, so. are
0: you telling us that at various points throughout this podcast you are going to be making references to Game yes. of Thrones?
1: Yes. Where, where necessary, I will draw the parallels to the Game of Thrones characters so that, Yay. you know, listeners who just... Listeners, unlike Lindsay, who are actually interested in good media, <laughs> that makes it sound like I just slag Shakespeare because that's the thing we're talking about. But no, anybody who likes Game of Thrones, I will try and uh, draw the obvious parallels or and some perhaps some not so obvious ones. I would also like to uh, point out that this episode is brought to you today by... Uh, Paradox Interactive the makers <laughs> of your own Europa Universalis 4 and Crusader Kings 2 this is not <laughs> this we're not, not
0: sponsored re- by them or anything <laughs> it's just that Aiden has spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours neglecting me and our cats to play these games uh, the, on yeah on in fact
1: we were going to record this computer. yesterday and then I was actually having my little own War of the Roses on yes. a
0: game and he got so mad when he lost Scotland uh, that that I got ruined his whole I night I did
1: I did I vassalized Ugh. them so good anyways those are two video games games for nerds who perhaps don't like Game of Thrones, but enjoy uh, history. Uh, We're putting up links to those games as well. They basically let you live out your medieval and renaissance era uh, historical fantasies, conquering lands and marrying your sister. It's all very (laughs) disturbing, but uh, just wanted to point out that we, well, one half of this podcast loves those games as well.
0: For me, the only prep I did for this was I I read a book, so...
1: (laughs) That's good, though, Lindsay. Uh, What was the book you read?
0: Uh, It was called The Wars of the Roses, England's First Civil War by Trevor Royal. Um, 400 and some page epic uh, going all the way back to the death of Edward III, leading all the way through to, well, really, the end of the book ends... With the end of the Plantagenet line, mm, um, and
1: the rise of the Tudors.
0: No, beyond that, because oh. the last direct descendant died in like seventeen thirteen or yes. something. So, okay. so it actually covers quite a substantial three hundred fifty year history yeah,
1: that's a, so. a big chunk of history yeah um i also read a book it was also called the wars of the roses but it's also called uh in other versions i think in the uk it's actually called the hollow crown um and it's by dan jones who uh, also does a bunch of great documentaries oh yeah uh, we will online. link to them
0: because they are fantastic yeah
1: and I, actually the documentary matches very closely to the book so if you just want to have three or four hours to just go through uh, the documentary you'll get a, a oh, good summary that sounds
0: like such a good afternoon three to four hours that's what of, we
1: did one afternoon we watched I'll do it this. again
0: <laughs> that's awesome
1: Anyways, it was also a very good uh, read. It started a little bit later than yours. Uh, It started with about Henry V and the Battle of Agincourt uh, and followed through basically to uh, Henry VIII and uh, kind of the wrapping up of the Tudor lineage there. So with that in mind, uh, we wanted to start off with some of the background, the contextual history. it and that really does cover more of what lindsay read about so i'll let her probably discuss most of this um but yeah the wars of the roses didn't just pop out of nowhere
0: no they didn't and i think that's a common misconception that a lot of people have they think about it as being this 30-year gap in in the line the direct line of succession i guess where there was warring between these two houses of the same royal line right and and there was the seeds of that were really born in the with the death of edward the third in 1377 Mm -hmm. so um I'm going to try and make this long story short, but it's, (laughs) it's kind of hard to do it justice, especially on a podcast. Um, if you're curious, I will throw up an image, um, a royal lineage chart so that you can kind of follow along if you want, um, on our, on our webpage. So, um, 1377, Edward III dies. He's one of the most successful medieval kings. Um, he's, a great warrior he's uh successful in the early battles of the hundred years war which England was fighting with France um and he restored royal authority following the end to his father Edward II's reign that was the, the famous deposition of Edward II by his wife Isabella and her lover Roger Mortimer um Edward II maybe possibly being a little bit Bisexual, possibly, or or full-on gay. Uh, not something that was acceptable at the time. So there were a lot of rumors about the way that he was dispatched, and one of them was that he had a red-hot poker shoved up his bum, um, <laughs> which may or may not have been true. But no, either way... Not in Game of Thrones. <laughs> in Game of Thrones, it absolutely would have happened. But, but whether or not that actually happened is not something that is confirmed. But uh, this was kind of a disastrous end to... To his reign, Edward III was installed on the throne in his place, but he wasn't actually able to reign until I think he was about 17 years old, um, and then he he does like 50 years on the throne and mm-hmm. and has a really great run of things. But he dies, and his eldest son Edward the Black Prince has already predeceased him, as well as his second son. So he's got three surviving adult sons left because of the rules of. Who can succeed on the throne? Um, uh, it has to be a firstborn son, and he his firstborn son is dead. Lucky for him, his firstborn son had a firstborn son, so the throne gets passed to Edward III's grandson Richard II, bypassing the three surviving adult sons who are. You know, in any other case would probably be more closely in line for the throne. Well, they'd be
1: more prepared to take the throne, for sure, because Richard II was 10 years old. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, they'd definitely be in a better position to be king, at least.
0: Absolutely, but because of the rules of primogeniture, this was a male-only primogeniture situation where only the firstborn male could could, um, take, uh, could take, um, could inherit the throne. Mm -hmm. Um, So this leaves most famously his third son john of gaunt um in a lurch kind of as the kind of counsel to the king he rules kind of in his stead until he reaches the age of majority so he so he's acting as counselor regent um and it's their descendants most notably um yeah the Duke of Lancaster John and Edmund Duke of York who kind of are the heads of the families that later start the Wars of the Roses and it all kind of starts with this issue of who should actually have ascended to the throne upon Edward III's death um Richard II does a fine job I guess at the start of his reign he puts down the Peasants Revolt in 1381 um this was a an uprising led popularly led by Watt Tyler who is a famous figure in English history, but um, the, the peasants revolted because they wanted more power, and Richard kind of gives it to them, but not really, and he puts down this revolt fairly spectacularly. He's only like 17 or 18 years old when it happens, right? And, um, and things are going pretty smoothly, I, I guess, for the for the first little bit, but eventually he, he kind of butts up against Parliament and against his own nobles and lords around him, um, he he ends up not being able to get enough money from Parliament to sustain his coffers and the, his expense, his expenses, I guess. And um, he surrounded himself with people that his lords, notably his own uncle, one of um, Edward III's sons, mm-hmm. don't agree with these people. So they kind of approach him and say, yo, like, let's let's take this back a step and he agrees initially but eventually he comes back and seeks retribution against this this group called the lord's appellant who um he he famously either exiles or executes them um in the end but this is sometime later and later on in his reign um and then yeah so under the merciless parliament which was 1388 is when he he kind of accepts the lord appellant lord's appellant um demands demands, Mm -hmm. and then reigns sort of through that until 1390s when he kind of begins this this tyrannical reign that lasts until 1399 which is when he is deposed in favor of Henry IV and it's interesting how Henry IV comes into into play because um, as shown in Shakespeare's play Richard II he is exiled after a I, was it a jousting match or something
1: yeah, or a duel or some, some sort the he wanted of to fight somebody yeah
0: yeah and uh and it, rather than allow them to go through this Richard just exiles them both and this is kind of what kicks off the the events that lead to Henry Bolingbroke or Henry the future Henry IV coming back and taking the throne so we have a king being deposed again which is not something that happens very often in English history I think it, it had happened a few times before this notably with you know 1066 Harold Godwinson being uh, uh deposed in favor of William the Conqueror well, yeah deposed yeah um you had King John being deposed for not uh agreeing to uphold the Magna Carta that he'd signed um there was edward II, edward III's father edward II, who was deposed quote unquote Just so it's poked. yeah so it's not it's not like it's something that happens but in each of those cases it was either somebody coming in and conquering the land and taking the throne or it was somebody being pushed out in favor of a, a male descendant
1: yeah in someone close in line and it was it yeah was like not a son exactly, or a brother yeah, right yeah in
0: this case it's a cousin who yeah. comes in and Who has a a strong claim, but it's a claim through the third surviving son of Edward III, not the firstborn son. So um, this is where you have the kind of the seeds of doubt that start to creep into the whole thing. Um, So Henry IV comes in. He reigns for a little while, kind of an unsteady reign. It's not, he's, he's fine. But I mean, if you've deposed a king, you're always going to be looking over your shoulder. His son, Henry V, has a much stronger hold on the English monarchy and the throne itself because of the fact that he's the second, the son of a deposed, or of a king who deposed another king. So he's a little bit more secure, but he also has great success on the battlefield. And so, I mean, famously, right? The Battle of Agincourt. Um. So, so that's going well for him, and then he has a son who reigns from the age of what nine months. Yeah. Henry VI ascends to the throne. Yeah, and that's and
1: where it really starts getting messy. Things fall
0: apart when Henry VI comes to the throne.
1: Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, Henry V, great king, everybody loved him. Uh, even somehow, some of the people he conquered in France, uh, famously, you know, marrying the daughter of the 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 king of France and thereby. Potentially making uh, his son, uh, Henry VI, uh, king of both England and France. He,
0: was he not the only king to hold that title officially? Yeah, I
1: think so, Did Henry
0: V yes. ever hold it?
1: No, because he was going to let... Uh, I don't remember. It was one of the Charleses, I think, right. was the king of France. And he but was an older he, man and he yes. knew... Yeah, so he knew he would eventually when he died the the title would pass on to either right. henry v or henry his right, heirs right? right so henry the so right. henry the sixth. um but the problem with henry the sixth is that he was a very terrible king he was the opposite of his father in almost every way uh Foremost I think obviously uh is the warrior component uh whereas Henry V took a much smaller army and basically conquered France uh Henry VI had a position of extreme power over uh France and had the much stronger army and uh still managed to lose it all back Well except for Calais. Yeah, he kept one tiny sliver. That's great. Um but that's that's a that is a problem and we'll get into that a little bit more but uh the much bigger problem was just that Henry VI by all accounts was not a very bright man. Um, they described him as simple-minded, easily swayed, completely uninterested in matters of state, and he was even prone to bouts of mental instability, let's call them. Yeah. Uh so he he would have bouts where he'd just go uh catatonic. catatonic. Yeah, just completely freeze. One at one point it's for eighteen months, which is in the story. We'll get there too. Um, but the big this problem of Henry VI not being an active king is really the entire impetus for uh the Wars of the Roses to draw my first game of Thrones parallel here for you, Lindsay. Uh, it's kind of how Robert Baratheon was a terrible King. Um, and when he died, uh, well, it's, it's a little different because Robert Baratheon had no real legitimate children because Cersei was having incest and all that. Anyways, point is, uh, when there's a power vacuum at the top of a monarchy, bad things happen. And that's what happens, uh, here with Henry VI is he's a living, uh, empty Power vacuum. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> I guess the the thing about having an empty vacuum of uh, at the, the throne is, I mean. There were rumors that Henry, because he was so, he was so devout and he was so religious, it's, he didn't even like the idea of nakedness or yeah. nudity. Yeah, So how could he have conceived his own son? There were rumors that his own son, uh, Edmund? Edward.
1: I think it was another Edward, yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, was not legitimate because how could he possibly have, you know, but that... Set, setting that aside, I mean, he was uh, the son of a Valois. Mm-hmm. The Valois were a famous family in, in, um, in, in France, France yeah. and they suffered from a, kind of a genetic mental instability that plagued uh, Charles VI. Um, his mother didn't have it, but it's possible that he had it because the catatonia that he lapsed into has been looked at by modern scientists and, and psychologists and people kind of suspect that he may have been schizophrenic mm-hmm. or that he had some kind of mental illness. So, mm-hmm. it's not like he was a bad king by choice. They were just it's one of those genetic lottery type situations that you're king and you don't that that's part of the genetic lottery, but also you're suffering from some kind of maladaption or malformity or something that that is just isn't yeah. going in your favor. So, I kind of feel bad for Henry this thing to get saddled with this, but... But he wasn't a great king. No, so. and
1: that's that's one of the hard things reading the histories about him is that he seems like just a nice, simple guy. Like, mm-hmm. he was, he would basically do whatever the last advisor would tell him to do. Which I think um, is
0: hilarious. It's like Donald Trump. Are we going <laughs> yeah. to, in 50 years or 150 years, say, uh, oh, Donald Trump seemed like a nice guy. He just went with the last thing that anybody ever told
1: him. Uh, of course, he only listened to, you know, one half of the country. But that's another thing. But, uh... Yeah, like Henry the he was he was as you mentioned very pious, just a, a stand up guy. Apparently, just the he would give you the clothes off his back because he really didn't care much even for being a king. There's a period where he gets deposed that we'll get into, and it seems like he was just happy not just being king chillin'. as being king. Like yeah. as long as they treated him fairly decently. He was an okay guy, right? Wasn't that
0: the point where, where when he was reinstated as king, he had to have new clothes made for him because yeah. he was wearing just terrible clothing not befitting a king? Yeah, so he was just like, yeah, yeah guys, you know, let's, let's chill. Yeah. It was well. probably more serious than that, but <laughs> But it's anyway. true.
1: And I mean, uh, you brought this up uh, when we were talking, Lindsay, that uh, this is a problem across Europe uh, <laughs> at this point in time because there's yeah. so much inbreeding. I mean, look at the on. Habsburgs. Yeah, the Habsburgs are the... And
0: those noses and the chin. The chin.
1: I mean, we're only a couple of centuries away from Charles V, and that chin is enough to conquer Europe on its own, which it almost did. So, I mean, there is <laughs> there is just a constant thing, and this is one of the problems uh, with, Well, it's uh,
0: inbreeding. Even though they had, you had to get a dispensation from the Pope in order to marry someone who yeah, you were blood-related to, yeah. to avoid uh, consanguinity, mm-hmm. yeah. um, it still happens, and of course... Even, people didn't get married without that papal dispensation. So, I mean, the and, and if you look back through the the you know, royal houses across Europe, they are all related to one. It's hard to avoid it even today. Yeah. You know, yeah. you got to go outside your own gene pool yeah. to, to find That's Thank why, goodness yeah. William, yeah, and William and Perry Harry went both way went outside way out, like which thank is just
1: Better for everybody, better I think for we're everybody. all in agreement. Um, but jumping back to uh, Henry the the 6th So this problem doesn't rear itself immediately, though, because, I mean, he's nine months old, as you mentioned, Lindsay, when he becomes king of both England and France somehow. Um, So while he's a child, uh, he has... There's a lot of goodwill behind him, and there was a lot of goodwill behind Henry V's reign. So everyone's still willing to pitch in and cover for this child there's some really great stories though of like they had to give him an anointed object like as a infant yeah to he play had to touch with. <laughs> it yeah in order to have it be considered blessed yes. or, like then it could become an official seal or something like yeah. that right like there's all these kind of crazy stories of him acting as a king when well before
0: not able to read yeah
1: or <laughs> talk say, or yeah walk. exactly um so it's kind of great but uh the, all the nobles all the country leaders um kind of rally around us and um Uh, how it winds up working for a large portion of his early life is that um there's a man from the duke of somerset i don't know his actual name right now um but he is he basically acts as the de facto ruler he he fills in uh and you know does all the work of the king in the medieval era which is prime minister yeah well he's essentially a prime minister Yeah, yeah he's he's uh he's you know, dis- settling disputes and levying taxes where necessary. He's helping the lead the war. king is in diapers. Yeah, exactly. And even for the first couple of years right. after that. So the Duke of Somerset is kind of running the show. And uh, so as Henry's a child, this isn't much of a problem because everything's going well. Let
0: me guess. The Duke of Somerset dies.
1: Yeah, he does die. You know why? Why? Because... Uh, things start going poorly in France the French for some reason don't want you know a six year old english yeah the <laughs> six-year old Englishman is their king who would have guessed why um and he gets killed by a rival clique uh in the court faction who's upset that he's losing the war in France and with him gone the country just basically falls to shit mm-hmm um, and there are a lot of factions here. We're going to keep it really kind of simple and we're going to kind of follow fall into Shakespeare's tropes of saying, well, there was the Lancastrians and the Yorks. Um, but for the most part, that does actually kind of work. Um, and there's a lot of different leaders at different times. Um, but for the major players for uh, general history, uh, Henry VI was married to, early on in his life, uh, to Margaret of Anjou. Uh, so she's, uh, I think, a, a, the daughter of a, duck, of a duke in France or a count, so. the county of Anjou. I don't know. Anyways, she's a fairly big, important noble from France. Um, and she's kind of also helping run the show, especially after Somerset's gone. She's kind of helping uh, organize everything in England. Um, and then on the Yorker side, there is Richard, the Duke of York. Um, and he's kind of these are the kind of two teams that are going to be facing off against each other for the duration of basically the rest of the war.
0: So York eventually um he, he initially sets himself up to kind of be the new Duke of Somerset, kind of the new Prime Minister, uh, with all of those levers of power at his disposal. Mm-hmm. And he does that fairly well for at least 18 months or so when Henry is in his first catatonic state.
1: Yeah. So um, Sorry, I, I forgot to mention that. But the yes. the thing that part of what causes like they start losing the war uh, and then they basically lose almost everything. Yeah, and for that's Calais.
0: probably what triggered Henry VI's downfall is yeah. when he hears that he's lost it there, he, he, he goes into a fit and then there's 18 months where he is just bedridden basically. Yeah. And like literally bedridden unable to clothe and feed himself. Like yeah. it's really bad.
1: And so yeah, and the nobles won't stand for Margaret doing everything while the king in this bedridden state so that's when uh the duke of york kind of steps in to start yeah. that process uh
0: so but when when henry kind of comes to margaret has the duke of york shipped out and her own people kind of surround them and brought back into power so we have this this kind of court intrigue with yeah. you know rival factions starting to split off between the duke of somerset and the lancastrian nobleman
1: and it's worth mentioning that uh york does a pretty good job uh, while he's this prime minister. Yeah, and, he
0: balances the like, budget. Yeah, Well, not yeah, balances no, the budget. That's they, not really a thing that happens. They're not really but, in
1: debt as No, much.
0: But, but he's not <laughs> spending as much and yeah. things are going fairly well for him.
1: And he's, yeah, he's, again, he's doing what Somerset was doing. He's he's filling in the gap of a terrible king. Even uh, And so a lot of people look at this and they might think, oh, I'm fine with uh, a Duke of York as king. That kind of makes sense to me. And it starts planting those seeds. Mm-hmm. So when Henry the VI wakes up again and the power vacuum is back at the top but it's easily manipulated by his wife um, and York is uh, you know, Gonzo Gonzo in
0: Ireland I think yeah he
1: sets off for Ireland and he he wants to uh, he lays low there for a bit um, but then he decides you know what well and of course and sorry and during that time uh, Henry the VI is still terrible uh, and there are still problems mounting and there's no way they're going to come back in France York says you know what I can do back. a better job of this. I can this. do a
0: better job. So he comes in with these, with now with aspirations to sit on the throne, and um, it, it's interesting that that the Duke of York, and later the uh, Earl of Warwick,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: Warwick the Kingmaker, yeah. they very carefully avoided treason. They always pledged yes. allegiance to the king up until the, the point, very end yeah. almost yeah um, they they always said you know we're doing this because the king is surrounded by people who are not kind of like what they did with Richard II the Lord's Appellant did with Richard II they said it's the people around you we are loyal to you but the people are giving you bad advice so let us put better people in, around you yeah. and sometimes the kings would go for that and sometimes they wouldn't so yeah it's, and, and
1: Henry VI really wouldn't as long as his wife was around because, because Margaret
0: of Anjou is a badass I mean if you want to talk about strong women which yeah. we talked about in our in our last special episode a couple of episodes ago um margaret of anjou was one of these you know very powerful women like a cersei lannister i think if you want to if you want to go with the game you of know? thrones yes. references <laughs> that's exactly where i'm going um that's 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 margaret of anjou yeah um so york is successful in his invasion he comes back from ireland and he invades everything's going great um he decides at some point that he wants to be king he doesn't just want to settle for prime minister
1: yeah and he's testing the waters with the nobles and he thinks he's going to go for it um and,
0: and then, then he and then he's di- he dies. And, then he dies. And, yeah. and and is is it it's richard it's the duke of york whose head is placed on the 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 spike with the paper crown on
1: Yes, that was him. Yeah. Or was that work? No, I don't remember. I think, I think, it, I was, think it was I think the Duke it was. of York. Anyways. Because
0: that's that's kind of an insult, right? Adding yeah. insult to serious yeah. grievous bodily injury. <laughs> you you you've had these aspirations to be a king and this yeah, is how that, it ends how you for you. Get, him.
1: Which um of course is not how it happened for uh, Ned Stark. Uh, of course, he was not trying to be king, but he was branded a traitor nonetheless and his head was also put on a spike just to continue the the running game of thrones here um so at this point obviously everything swings back to the lancastrians again and margaret's there uh pulling pulling the strings um but in this case uh that is not well enough alone uh and other yorkists now have the idea mm, maybe i could be king as well yeah rob stark <laughs> the
0: duke of york's son edward mm-hmm. steps up and decides that he could do a better job than uh, anybody um but he goes straight for the d word deposition yeah. and and heads straight for this end goal mm-hmm. he he successfully deposes henry the henry the 6th in 1461 and takes over the crown as edward the 4th yes um it's not it's not all happy white roses <laughs> for this particular son no. of york um one of his biggest problems is one of his oldest allies, the Earl of Warwick, and uh, and we should pause here to talk about Warwick because Warwick, yeah, the Kingmaker, is a yeah. very important character, and and we we briefly mentioned him up a couple a uh, couple minutes ago, but he was originally aligned with Henry the Sixth, uh, but after a territorial dispute with Somerset, he collaborated with the Duke of York, so Edward's father, and switched sides, so from La- the Lancasters to the Yorks. Um, and, he, and he worked really hard at making Edward IV the king. And this is where he gets the, the title kingmaker. Um, so he, he sees him crowned. And he's made captain of Calais, yeah, I believe. Which is a very so, important a huge post. Because it's,
1: it's the one part of England that's not in England. So yes. anytime you have any problems, you can just go back to your post where all the men are loyal to you. Yeah. And you can hide there if yeah. need be as. I, That's a little bit of a a spoiler alert
0: there exactly so so work is very politically astute and and as the captain of calais i think his plan was to have edward the fourth who at this point um when he was crowned he was unmarried so and married like 22 him, or something like yeah very, very young, young very yeah. handsome he yeah. was one of these dashing men whoever he used to wear beautiful outfits and have people look at him all the time he was very attractive very, very attractive vain, king yeah. a very vain man yes yeah. um so why not marry him to some French duchess or some or Burgundian? French yeah, there's Burgundian yeah, yeah. or some someone important that you could form an alliance that could maybe help you know your foothold on the continent. Um, so Warwick goes through all this trouble and is severely embarrassed when it comes out in 1464 that Edward has already married, and not only has he has he married without the advice of his council or any other nobles, he's married a basically a commoner
1: and an english commoner yeah
0: Elizabeth Woodville is the is the woman that he marries and this is not a politically advantageous marriage at all um, the Woodvilles so Elizabeth's family are notorious for their social climbing and mm-hmm. Elizabeth herself as queen begins to manipulate the levers of power for her own gain and for the gain of her family she marries off her siblings and cousins to various noblemen important and puts families, them in important yeah. positions so that that has to have rankled Warwick quite a lot because um, he's spent all this time arranging and, in fact, had successfully arranged a marriage that now had to be broken because the king had married someone else and he didn't even know. And he's one of Edward's closest advisors. Well, Put him
1: on the throne. He was one of Edward's closest advisors, and that's part of the problem. I mean, the, the marriage is a, definitely a turning point, but um, at least in Dan Jones's book, it was very clear that— um, basically Edward had been benching uh, work for a yeah. couple of years. Like he, he'd given him all these huge titles after he'd taken the throne and rewarded him handsomely. Um, but he kind of sensed that Warwick was perhaps just in it for the power. Yeah. Um, and so he started, you know, just un- not heeding his advice quite so much, looking to other people for, for input and so forth. Um, and then this marriage comes and just wrecks all of Warwick's plans for internet, for international diplomacy. Basically. Uh, and yeah, so Edward's, kind of in trouble after it? a little he?
0: bit and and of course because Warwick is so upset by this he switches sides again and yeah. works to put henry the sixth back on the throne of england which he does successfully for a very brief period in 1470 um, up until his uh, henry's second deposition in 1471 so he reigns for another year um this is now we're we're well and truly good and deep into the wars of the roses um work doesn't survive much longer and is uh, yeah. Killed at the foggy Battle of Barnet, which is one of those one
1: of, the big ones. One of those
0: big battles in the Wars of the Roses that yeah. we'll talk about a bit. But um, he meets an unceremonious end. But he had made two men king: one for the first time, and one for the second time. But he 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 deserves his title as kingmaker. Mm-hmm. And I think he's one of those important figures that just shows how being politically astute and smart about your alliances is what actually gets matters. you places it's yeah. not it's yeah. not necessarily about having the biggest army or, or the best as yeah. we'll see with the battle of bosworth having the the advantage the home field advantage or the yeah. upper ground
1: and and least of all important is the claim to the throne it's yeah, really exactly. just about who you can make happy yeah to if work wanted
0: aiden to be king i'm sure that he could have made <laughs> exactly aiden i could king. have been ooh. he could have made me king yeah, he well, could have made our cats king
1: possibly yeah. maybe
0: not i don't know
1: Not 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 nico she's too dumb um but anyways uh, and this is really sorry. This is just to jump in here. Sorry, uh, this is my favorite bit in the whole story because it is so Game of Thronesy. Because you have to remember what works kind of path was. He was starting out, uh, you know. Just to, we're going to use the Game of Thrones references. He started off uh, working for the Lannisters um, as a minor minor noble. Then he switches sides to the the Starks, and he gets Rob Stark all the way to the Iron Throne, claims it, and then when Rob Stark starts pissing him off, he goes back, finds Cersei. Who he just opposed out of her throne uh and you know works with her to go back and try and claim it again and is successful yeah and then loses it again yeah <laughs> and that is just like that is a crazy journey for one guy to go on on this throne and it just lays bare that you know the only thing anybody cared about at this point in time was was power yeah um it had nothing to do with any sort of high-minded anything it was literally just well i want to be able to do everything i Feel I mean like Warwick is called the Kingmaker but I think he probably had designs on the throne for himself it's possible. It, to some respect in some way right when he put Henry the sixth back on uh, at one point I think Dan Jones mentioned that you know there was obviously going to be another power vacuum um, but this time with most of the country still being royal uh, loyal to the Yorkists. Um, what was Warwick's game plan? Well, he was probably going to try and control Henry the Sixth entirely mm-hmm. and act as king, mm-hmm. uh, just like Somerset had and just like Duke G- or Margaret of Anjou had. So it was really just I, I love that that whole story. And then he dies, terribly, and it's it's great.
0: Yeah. Um, so. Edward IV reigns from 1471. The death of Henry VI ha- comes at some point in there, and it's it's kind of unclear how he dies. It's said in the in the official accounts that he died of melancholia, but yeah. um, that is probably yeah. shorthand for he was killed by some guard in the Tower of London because yeah. that's how kings were usually dispatched. They weren't beheaded; they were
1: starved yeah. or something. Or yeah, or quietly disposed yeah. of somewhere. Yeah. So
0: Edward IV, and and probably by Edward IV,
1: obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: Edward IV reigns from 1471 until his death in 1483 in his later years he kind of got fat and lazy and yeah, well, very had, likely died of a stroke brought yeah. up brought about by poor health poor eating poor diet exercise all of that he was
1: he was a major horn dog too apparently oh, yes. i mean this is why this is the famous story of why he married edward uh elizabeth, elizabeth woodville. woodville it was because she wouldn't sleep with him until he until he married her yeah and he was that desperate that he said yeah so she must have been quite a looker but um yeah this was his vice i mean everybody otherwise people regarded his kingship as a very positive one he, yeah. was, he was a good king, especially after the horror that was Henry VI's incompetence. Um, he was the kind of monarch that the medieval uh, king realms sorry, were looking for and yeah. they were used to. Uh, so he had his vices and they led to his death, but he was remembered generally as a good king as far as kings go.
0: One of the interesting things about Edward that always struck me is that he was... He was so keen to give people the benefit of the doubt.
1: Yeah, whenever this comes up someone, again and again. Yeah, yeah.
0: whenever someone double crossed him. Like when Warwick initially um was, you know, he,
1: he Yeah, he raised in rebellion.
0: Yeah.
1: went to Calais and Basically, Edward forgave him, I think. Yeah, he was just like, no, oh, it, was, a, it back. was
0: after the the whole thing putting Henry back on the throne, trying to put oh, okay. Henry back on that's the throne. that's right, yes. That, that he was just like, yeah, you know, we're good. Yeah. Of, of course, probably in his heart of hearts, they weren't, but. I mean the fact that he that he was so open to forgiveness even if it was just on the face of things that's kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, he did it um, a couple times. Though.
0: He did it with his brother, his, his brother own brother. too.
1: Yeah, also rebelled against him twice. Yeah, and, you know And it was
0: only on the second time that he was like, yeah, yeah. you know, I can't afford to have yeah. this happen again and had him uh, yeah. executed, executed
1: but, after a mock trial kind of thing. Yeah. So I mean it's it is uh it is it is an interesting uh sense of how the inertia of the country worked that there was a terrible ruler and they sought out basically this much better ruler yeah who also had a claim to the throne it wasn't yeah. as clean cut as henry the sixth but it was a claim um but what happens when edward the fourth dies Lindsay?
0: edward the fourth dies and his son edward the should have been edward the um is only 12 years old mm-hmm. too young to reign on his own and so is placed Ostensibly under the care of his uncle Richard, yeah. good old Uncle Richard. Yeah. Um. So one thing I'm not clear on is whether or not Edward V was actually Edward V. I
1: don't. I think he is titled as Edward V because but he, he was never he was never anointed coronated, and yes. never wore the crown. I don't think so, but I think they still count him as the fifth.
0: Because the, Edward the sixth was Henry VIII's son, and so that that had to have yeah. that that would have to mean that yes, there was an Edward the fifth, fifth that would make sense even yes. if he wasn't officially sitting on the throne yes
1: yeah but, we'll go with that yeah
0: but richard his uncle richard the duke of gloucester is um put in charge of his care or assumes yeah, the care it's it, yeah
1: it's an interesting one the the actually the dan jones documentary about the richard the third period of this is is a great watch on its own because he kind of tries to take you through things from the viewpoint of richard the mm-hmm. third who is wants to avoid a henry the sixth situation yeah. with this new son yeah so he starts off with the best of intentions potentially and i
0: think that's true because yeah. richard in in all of the infighting and, and their brother the duke of clarence is the one that rebelled twice against edward the fourth when he was still yeah. on the throne yeah. so um While through that entire period of uncertainty with back and forth between Henry VI and and Edward IV, Richard, the Duke of Gloucester, stayed perfectly loyal to Edward IV the entire time and pledged allegiance to his son, Edward V, upon his death. So I don't think there was, at least initially, any intention for Richard to take the crown. However, that's what ended up happening. It happened in a fairly quick period of a couple of months after the death of Edward IV, up until the early July of of uh, fourteen eighty three, which is when Richard is crowned in Westminster Abbey as Richard
1: the Third. Yeah, yeah, because he has his nephews declared uh, uh, illegitimate, illegitimate, and, and then, then, then he
0: has them. Initially, he puts them in the tower for their own protection. It's just his his nephew Edward, but eventually his the the. Uh, Edward's brother is is brought there there as as well Well, because Elizabeth Woodfill goes into hiding in Westminster Abbey. um, Or is it Westminster Abbey? Yeah, I think it's
1: Westminster, yeah.
0: Um, She goes into hiding in order to um, avoid... The fate uh, that she believes is going to happen because she, you know, like yeah, I. She's it's, very
1: forward thinking because yeah, it does happen. Exactly. Then, yeah. So she
0: keeps her sons close, but eventually both of the sons end up in the Tower of London and they both disappear. Yeah. And nobody to this day knows what happened to them. Although 200 years after the fact, um, a, a cask of bones was found buried at the bottom of a stairwell, which is where the common account was that these yeah. poor these princes were, murdered, were yeah. buried. Yeah. So it's the, the princes in the tower. These poor lost princes in the tower likely murdered on the uh, authority of their uncle Richard III. Um, which is the famous story that everybody knows from Shakespeare? Yeah. Um, probably happened. Richard yeah. was the only one to gain from their deaths, yeah. so it's it's very very likely that he had them murdered. And there was a um, confession
1: from one of his associates after yeah. Richard III had died and stuff, but it's probably comf- well. And, and, and so as forth. we'll yeah. see,
0: everything that happens after this is clouded by the Tudor mythmaking and yeah. and the storytelling that the Tudors like to tell about themselves to legitimize their own claim to the throne. But yeah. um, but either way, Richard III sits on the throne for a mere two years, 26 months, I think, before um, a, a long-lost Lancastrian relative yeah. named Henry Ish. Tudor Ish. comes from France to uh, take, the take the throne. And this is one of those fascinating things that, that happens. He's he's born of um, a no, mother. Let, let's,
1: let's talk about the the parentage of of Henry Tudor. that's because, what I was gonna do okay, before well, he
0: interrupted me I, I'm just
1: gonna start it from the top. so the <laughs> the the line starts basically with um the Henry the sorry the wife of Henry V after Henry the V has died uh, she remarries a Welshman named Owen Tudor uh, and he's um he's a noble he's not you know peasant born or anything like that but he's a welshman like he has no real relation to anything um and she uh she marries him and has two more sons uh jasper and edmund edmund um and edmund in turn has a son named henry so uh literally uh henry tudor who comes and claims the throne of england here has a claim through his grandmother um whose only claim is that she was married to a king she has no... Well, she actually does have a minor blood connection as well because yes. she's also a great-granddaughter of
0: John of Gaunt. John of Gaunt,
1: going all the way back to that Edward III yes. drama. Um, so she has a minor bit of English uh, royal blood, I she guess. Has she has French royal but blood. She has French royal blood. But on his
0: father's side, there's nothing... He was a, a page to the king. He, yeah. was, a, his, he was His his grandfather, Owen Tudor, was was nothing much at all. Yeah. Um, as the the English like to say, a bit of rough is how you might call Owen yes. Tudor. Yes. So... so Henry Tudor's claim to the throne is very, very shaky. And non-existent. To put yeah. it mildly. Yeah. Um, but he comes in and kind of sweeps into power with this triumphant meeting of the battle uh, at Bosworth Field. It's, yeah. it's this uh, incredible 1485 um, legendary moment that... Um, Sees Richard III charging across in in a, in a patch of open field from his very you know he's got something like twelve thousand men yeah. and to, to Henry Tudor's like three 5, or five or, or whatever like yeah, not much. he sees a direct line to Henry Tudor charges through the field but is unseated from his horse and uh, and is hacked to death on the yeah. field and Henry Tudor is is according to legend crowned on this field after the, the crown is removed from a Hawthorne bush or something yeah. and it's placed on his head in a yeah. field making Richard III the only king to die in battle the last king to die in battle
1: after Harold yeah
0: and the only king other than Harold to die in battle so yeah. that's a pretty ign- ignominious yes. is that how you say it's it? one of those
1: words you never say out loud. yeah you, you read, read it them. and you're like oh yeah I know ignominus what that means yes yeah
0: it was an ignoble end. An <laughs> yes, ignoble end to that. Richard III and to the Plantagenet dynasty. Yeah.
1: Nothing will come of nothing. So, uh, and this is where, uh, if you just read Shakespeare, that's the end of the Wars of the Roses. Um, but actually, there's, there's this uh, back and forth continues for a while. And it's important to remember that Henry Tudor was backed by the French. Uh, this was a common foreign policy tool at the time, right? If there's insecurity in a country, uh, and you have one of the claimants of the throne in your country, that maybe, them. yeah, maybe you'll send them over with a small army. And Scotland see-
0: did it too, didn't yeah. they? Like oh, well, Scotland and France were always yeah, allied they, with one another, yeah. so I'm sure the Scots weren't. too Yeah, they, well, yeah, I, with I, him. there might
1: have even been some Scottish mercenaries in his army. I don't remember, um, but yeah, so. This is, uh, so this continues happening even after Henry the Seventh takes over. There's, uh, at one point, a, a, another Edward, uh, someone claims to be the prince from the tower who was somehow survived and wound up in Ireland. And, oh, what do you know? I'm going to invade with an army from the Northwest. Uh, and so it's, uh, and so it's, uh, just interesting. This kind of pattern repeats itself over and over again, regardless of, uh, who's in power at the time. And it really doesn't end until Henry the eighth kind of comes power. And he's the next generation kind of solidifies mm-hmm. the very much crown.
0: like Henry V kind of solidifying after the deposition of Richard the second. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so that 50 year period is really an interesting thing just um from if you if you look at a, a list of the battles that actually happened from the first battle of St Albans in 1455 to I guess the last one the the uh, battle of Stoke or the battle of Bosworth yeah. in 1485 yeah. um most of them I think out of all of them only four were are a definitive Lancastrian victory. Yeah. The rest were Yorkist victories. Yeah. So um, to have a king that it, that eventually comes back Henry, in Henry Tudor later Henry the Seventh, who, like Aidan mentioned, doesn't have a bloodline relative, a male, that, a male bloodline relative that would connect him to the throne. He kind of takes it by force. Yeah. And so to see this this much more powerful slash lucky uh yorkist dynasty kind of taken down by uh an upstart welsh you know yeah
1: lancastrian light yeah right
0: to come in from france with the backing of the french and take over um must have been a bit of a shock a bit of a blow um but but it is interesting also to remember that the rivalry is is much more than just lancaster versus york as aiden said and and it's bringing that up with regard to henry tudor um there is another rival branch of the lancaster family the line descended from the mistress of john of gaunt catherine swinford um known as the beauforts Mm -hmm. who were disinherited but later put back into the line of succession and so um henry the sixth so much i know it's like it's so crazy but um Henry VII is descended from that that particular line. So yeah. he does have a claim, it's just so weak that it's not worth mentioning almost, right? And this yeah. is where this is where some of that lasting lingering doubt kind of solidifies, right? Yeah. Um, making that more complicated is the fact that Edward IV's descent through his mother is from Anne Mortimer who is also a granddaughter of Edward III's Second son Lionel of Antwerp, Jesus. the first Duke of Clarence. So, so technically Edward the <laughs> Fourth maybe had a, a more direct line if you count if you count his mother's line. We're gonna get into that a little bit I think uh, um, at the end of our episode here <laughs> when we talk about who should have actually been <laughs> the rightful uh, heir to sit on the throne. But yeah. it it does get really messy, and that's why it's it's so much more than just Lancaster versus York. It's various houses of Lancaster and various mm-hmm. Dukes of York and and their allies who all kind of step up and say no like i'm the right person to be sitting on the throne.
1: And it and it is really interesting and i think we'll talk about this a little bit later is that um, the, by the end there's hardly anybody left who yeah. has any traditionally royal plantagenet blood. Mm-hmm. Um, because they've all tried to take the throne or helped someone to, have to take the throne and then or even just potentially have the ability to claim the throne Mm -hmm. and they get killed off uh the the wars of the roses book that i read uh the hollow crown starts off with the final execution of plantagenet who she was an old woman i think she was in her late 70s or something, something 71 yeah and she and she's murdered because uh she might you know Pose a threat to the crown in like somehow. the
0: 14 or 15, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it like that, was in right? Henry
1: VIII's reign near yeah. the end of it. Uh, it was. It's yeah. a very disturbing thought that that they were this concerned about um,
0: Lancastrian uprising. Yeah. right. Yeah,
1: even at this late stage.
0: Um, the other thing that's kind of a I don't, I don't know if I call it a misconception or if it's just something that is popularly um, assumed. But the the Wars of the Roses kind of took over the whole country. And at first, it really was just a dynastic squabble. Mm -hmm. But as these battles started to kind of roll out across the country, I mean, starting with the First Battle of St. Albans, which was literally fought in the streets of St. Albans. Yeah,
1: it was an urban war, which is very uncommon. Um,
0: You end up having... Wherever these marauding Yorkist or Lancastrian armies were marching the people in their path would end up impacted. And um, the the people who were fighting in those armies eventually didn't even care about York or Lancaster. They're just like, you killed my father. Prepare to die, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, Inigo really, Montage, it, yeah. it really was just about vengeance. Yeah. And when you think about some of the these battles, for example, um, the Battle of Toughton in 1461 was the bloodiest battle and still is the bloodiest battle ever fought on English soil. I think the, well, the, the number biggest, is yeah. 28,000 soldiers or men died at that battle in yeah. one day in a two-hour period. Yeah. That was something like 1% of the entire population of England yes, at the time. Which is That's crazy. That's insane. Yeah. The field was red with blood. Um, it it's it beats the the psalm the battle of the psalm yeah like, it's in literally of, the most
1: bloody battle in in England's whole history yeah
0: like that's that's, that's pretty crazy, crazy all yeah. to decide who was going to sit on the throne um, you have the Battle of Barnet which as we mentioned that's where Warwick died um, it was foggy and it was hard to see and so men started fighting each other yeah, they were on they, the they same side and, and, and if people approached from the side or from the front they assumed they were on the opposite side and so they were killing brothers killing brothers fathers killing sons um, the Battle of Tewkesbury was where um, the the first and last time that a Prince of Wales died in battle. Yes, that's that right. Was yeah. Henry the son died in battle yeah. at Tewkesbury? So I mean, these were these were incredibly bloody battles. They were harsh battles. They were involving the people, um, especially yeah. if the people were living in the town that the camps decided to fight nearby. Um, so these, the, it was, it wasn't like it wasn't like world war 1 or world war 2 in terms of the impact on the local population or um, on the, the people the in the English military the civil
1: war is right. was far more dangerous for them but, but if, it
0: was impactful and i mean a lot yeah. of these places i think there's a field where the 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 people um, The losing side left the field so quickly they dropped their clothes and everything as they were running and the field to this day is called lose coat field because of that I mean this is something that is it's deeply embedded and imprinted on the English landscape so um as the first civil war and it was England's first civil war it is very impactful it's not surprising that Shakespeare would choose this period to write you know eight nine plays about yeah right basically
1: yeah and and just to just to jump on that, uh, it is kind of the end of the feudal medieval period for yeah. England. It, it's after this that, especially with Henry the Eighth uh, and the Reformation and Anglican uh, Church coming in and everything, it is it's it's the start of that Renaissance, that uh, Enlightenment mm-hmm. uh, era really begins after that. And this is the last kind of blood feud um, turned large scale for a crown. Um,
0: accepting the the civil war in the 1660s yeah the civil Civil
1: war was about a group of nobles trying to take over all rulership as for for their own purposes as a caste or as a group not necessarily for oh i want to fight for uh what's his name over there yeah what was his name Charles? You're, no, the other guy.
0: Oliver Cromwell. Oliver
1: Cromwell. They didn't want to go fight for Oliver. They wanted just to generally have more rights and more uh, ability yeah. to levy their own taxes. Whatever they were fighting for, I don't, I'm not an expert on the English Civil War, but this one was literally just like, well, no, I like I like the Duke of York more. He's a better king. We yeah. should go kill the other king right now. Yeah. Like that 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 level of personal allegiance and not allegiance to an ideal um, was still that is a definitively uh, medieval. Uh, kind of worldview and well frame. And,
0: and edward iii was really at the height of that when edward mm-hmm. iii back in the 1300s um all of his lords and dukes and everybody that he surrounded himself with the earls they all commanded large armies themselves yeah. and so it really was a feudalist system that was um a militia that that was yeah. comprised of all of these people and eventually it becomes more about land ownership and it's about mercantilism and um yep yeah. sorry mercantilism Um, and it's it's all of this stuff that this other stuff that comes about that leads into um, Elizabeth's reign and the the things that come out of that with you know, in terms of the trade and yep. the Dutch East India Company and thing, other yeah. things that make money for the crown that that nobody is really not that nobody is concerned with it, but it's just it's less of an issue, yeah. right? It's just we want good governance so that we can make money. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And and uh, this is actually one of the things that I know you're not a huge fan of Game of Thrones, and I'm not nah, I'm on this point. It. Just say but it. But it is it is a very good representation, I, I feel, of of. Um, the way that these games of thrones, uh, games for the throne, were played amongst nobles who played with their their you know the armies were made up of peasants and you know minor nobles who were willing to fight and die for their their uh, their liege lord, um, but you know there's so many good quotes about <laughs> within Game of Thrones you know Littlefinger at one point points out that. The peasants don't give a shit who's who's mm. the king in in King's Landing. Nobody gives a damn. Nobody cared who was king in London as long as you know the taxes weren't too high yeah. and they could you know eke out a living and have enough for their kids and, and not so forth.
0: die for and their not, religious belief or yeah. their allegiance to exactly. whoever was you know lord over their over their land. Plot of exactly.
1: Land. Yeah. And and that was that that uh, yeah that that whole way of life just started transitioning at this point. Mm-hmm. And um, that's one of the things I. I really wish Game of Thrones would get to eventually. Is, well, you,
0: know. you can write to George R.R. Martin. No, I'll just do it in my
1: fan fiction. It's fine. Okay. I will get there eventually. They will have a, a mini industrial revolution in my uh, continuation. Why,
0: some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrown upon them. So speaking of fan fiction... <laughs> Shakespeare, Shakespeare basically now, yeah. <laughs> is writing medieval fan fiction at this point. Fan it's fiction true. about the kings of England. Real person fic. Yeah. Not allowed on fanfiction.net. No. Um, he he wasn't working with the same sources that we have today. No. Or, obviously, or not, not. obviously not the same sources. Not the same caliber of source.
1: Well, yeah. Or you Not have, even the same... Yeah, like breadth of sources too. It's no, a really good.
0: There, this was at a period. You know, you would have these hagiographies, maybe that would be written about mm-hmm. kings or whoever, um, but you didn't have comprehensive histories, and they certainly weren't unbiased as historians try mm, to be no. today. You, you, the two main sources that Shakespeare was consulting were um, the Chronicles of England by Raphael Holland, Holland's head, um, written in the, the mid to late fifteen hundreds. And Edward Hall's *The Union of the Two Noble and Illustrious Families of Lancaster and York*.
1: I think that's a shortened title, actually.
0: <laughs> it might be. It I was think one of those full-page another full one I saw. It was titles. like, yeah, the yes. full page, yeah. Um, so, and, and on top of that, you have this new Tudor dynasty with a, you know, Henry the Seventh being a usurper, um, and then Henry the Eighth and Elizabeth the First really trying to cement the legacy of their family. Um, Henry VII famously combining these two symbols, the the white and the red rose, that were not in use before Henry VII. Not heavily, at least. No, yeah. and, and put them together and made the English rose that is still used today on coats of arms and flags and whatnot throughout the kingdom. Um, so you're trying to build a brand. You're trying to yeah. build a legacy. And going against that... By suggesting wow. even mildly that the Tudors didn't belong on the throne, not buying into the myth that the Tudors were trying to sell, would have been very dangerous. Yeah, I want to bring more up
1: impossible to publish and and, and especially and so for so somebody far. like yeah. Shakespeare.
0: Like I want to bring up a Richard the Third anecdote mm-hmm. briefly. One of a a poet, not not anybody that I recognized anyway from the annals of literary, literary history, wrote a very short couplet that made fun of three of Richard III's noblemen mm-hmm. uh, Ratcliffe, Catesby, and Lovell, and and Richard III himself. It was a couplet that made fun of them, called them barnyard animals: rat, cat, dog, uh, and okay. a hog, for which Richard, was yeah. Richard III. Yeah. Um, he was hanged, drawn, and quartered as a traitor. Yeah, because for writing two lines of poetry. Yeah. <laughs> Shakespeare. This is during his Richard's day, time, It was during yes, Richard's but... <laughs> day, but in in Elizabeth's day. It would not have been wise or expedient in any way to write anything um, that would paint her ancestors the winning team in a bad light yeah. so he had to tread very carefully he did and and so did the historians how holland's head and hall and everybody else who was trying to write about this period in history was trying to do so in a way that painted the tutors in the best light and we see that in books that were started under edward the fourth and were yeah, continued are, under yeah, um, of that. the seventh yeah. and so the, it's interesting the way that these things kind of um these things kind of play Shift out in the plant, actual yeah. history and and
1: and Shakespeare's plays are, are a great example because the the end result really of all these history plays is to show that Henry the Seventh is the only logical solution to the troubles of England over the Wars of the Roses and even before all the way back to Richard the Second and Edward the Third. It's that well Henry the Seventh is the 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 natural outcome, um, and so everything kind of has to build to that. Most notably in Richard the Third has to be a perfect villain, horrible villain, because he if. You know that just makes Henry the Seventh by a comparison look great. Yeah. So I mean, he really does a number on Richard the character. let Let's give him which, a
0: hunchback. I mean, well, he wasn't he the one to only do that, but
1: well, no. Well, it, and he did have a hunch <laughs> when they found his his remains. He didn't but, have a
0: hunch. He had he was scoliosis, yes, which so. would have made him appear to have one shoulder higher than the other, which is all that the historical record yeah, ever said yes. about him. It's true. But they take that and they say, oh, it's a hunchback. Oh, he has a club foot. Oh, yeah. he was small yeah. and weak featured and and looked like a. a you know, like they they just painted him in the worst possible light, and yeah. Aiden's exactly right to make Henry Tudor out to be this this great conquering hero.
1: And it also works for the other one, the other patriotic reasons, like Henry V being this grand orator. There's not really a lot of uh, historical evidence for his oratorical skills. He was a great soldier and a great leader. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's no we few, we happy few, we band of brothers no. in Once his Once more into the d-
0: breach, dear friend. Yeah, that,
1: that's all He did have a eventually.
0: flair for writing in his letters to some of his commanders as um, your boy. Shakespeare? No, you're right. The guy who wrote your Oh, book. George R. R. Martin. No, Dan Jones. <laughs> yeah. As he wrote, um, or in his documentary, he yeah. says he's he's poured over some of the letters that were written by Henry Ah, uh, yes, that's right. Yeah. And and he did have a little bit of a, a flair for the for the written word. Yeah. Um, so maybe. He so was. it's not maybe it's he, not entirely un, un- no. unlikely. And, and
1: actually, and that is worth mentioning is that you know we're kind of bashing on Shakespeare as you know a propagandist really because he basically was for the Elizabethan court, um, but. It's not like you can't get a, a decent idea of the thrust of that period right. from the plays. I mean, even if that was your only exposure to the Wars of the Roses and then you listen to us just talk about it for mm-hmm. half an hour, 45 minutes, you'd be like, Oh yeah, that's close enough. That's right. kind of what I remember, right? So, I mean, the the, the characters and the characterizations are obviously going to be way different, but the main story uh, is actually fairly consistent across the plays.
0: I, and you have to remember also that Shakespeare was doing not just... Uh, "Quote unquote propaganda work for the Tudor monarchy, but um, he was writing allegories for what was going on at the time. Yeah, right. And these were these were things that they were worried about the succession. They were worried about um, invading armies. At this time, it was the Spanish and not the French. But um, and Shakespeare was also just concerned with good writing. I yeah. mean, it makes yeah. it makes Richard the Third makes for a better villain when he it, when he looks like a villain and when you you kind of go through the." Um, is it called physiognomy yeah yeah where what you look like represents what your soul is like yeah. it's just good storytelling it's it's so much easier to have Charles the Seventh fall in love with Joan of Arc, even though that never happened yeah. on uh, <laughs> in real close. life, to have them fall we in didn't love on stage. Mention Joan of Arc in no, the exactly, Sorry, but, but yeah, yeah. Um, because that's French history. Yeah, who, cares who cares about, about the that. French?
1: Yeah, they only won the uh, war. I mean,
0: <laughs> but it makes for good drama when you see them fall in love, and when you see Joan of Arc rebuff the the Dauphin, mm-hmm. or when you have. Um, uh, Prince Hal and Henry Hotspur, who is one of the most popular, two of the most popular characters in the entire Shakespearean canon, they're a generation apart in yeah. real life. <laughs> but in the play, in Henry VI, the or in, sorry, Henry IV, the they are the same age. Yeah. They are rivals. They're
1: they're kind of points, That yeah. just
0: makes for better drama. Yeah. I mean, Shakespeare gets a little bit of poetic license. I think we all, all of us writers, get a little bit of poetic license when we want to write about these things because it just makes for a better story. And yeah. when you're putting on a play for 3,000 groundlings, well, they wouldn't all be groundlings. But when you're putting on for largely uneducated masses who aren't going to nitpick, they're not, well, yeah, this they're isn't not the gonna YouTube know. comment <laughs> section of the Elizabethan time.
1: Well, um, I'm sure they did heckle if there was like, that's not how that battle went and Threw a tomato or something. <laughs> Richard
0: III wasn't that bad. But, uh, you know, you have to make broad strokes. And so this is just it's forgivable i guess definitely yes but you have to understand that before you go into shakespeare you have to understand that this is not um perfectly written he made choices that impact and unfortunately have impacted the way that we look at the wars of the roses and the way that we look at these history plays yeah
1: because they the way that because they're so uh produced they've been reproduced through time so Mm -hmm. often and they're the one way that a lot of people will learn about the war of the roses Mm -hmm. they really have kind of created their own alternate history almost Mm -hmm. of of what she of what this time period was all about and because of that they've formed they've had a huge sway over the public imagination of Mm -hmm. this time period
0: which is not something that is unusual today i mean i think is as um as lucy worsley pointed out in her um she has a, a popular series, a uh, history, well, popular for me anyway, because I like this <laughs> shit, a um, uh, history uh, fact versus fiction kind of thing where she yeah. takes down some of the fictions. Um, she talks about the Battle of Stubbins Bridge during the Wars of the Roses, where the the opposing sides, the Lancastrians and the Yorkists, threw uh, Yorkshire puddings and, and blood puddings at one another on a bridge. That... Never happened. It was something that was invented in like the 1980s or something like that. Yeah. So I mean, mythologizing and legendary stories are being told to this day, and and it's not like we're immune to it today. So it's it's hard to it's hard to look at Shakespeare and, and cast dispersions on what he did. It's just important to recognize that he did it. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Once more, I'll close the wall up with our English dead.
1: So, before we get into our uh, well patented bickering, Lindsay, uh, I did want to just kind of touch a little bit on how um, Shakespeare interpreted it and how that's impacted our understanding of the time period um, and how the histories kind of reshaped that for me as I was reading at least. It kind of uh, reshaped how I consider the whole time period. Um, And so, for me, I mean, that whole time period from Richard II to Henry VII kind of taught me that uh, the power of kings is temporary and heavily based on the will of the people. You know, it's it's basic poli sociology. Uh,
0: Magna Carta!
1: Uh, well, it's anything, right? Like, the governed have to give their consent to the, to the right. governors, right? right? Um, and... This just laid it bare mm-hmm. um, in a time period where that was not how anybody considered any sort of power. It wasn't until Leviathan, which was after the, the Civil War in the late 1600s, that anybody even came, or came up with this idea of uh, the, the body politic coming from the masses mm-hmm. um, to give their consent to reign. Yet it's all here in the history. Mm-hmm. Um, from King John all the way down to Charles I who got his head cut off. Um, mm-hmm. The source of the true power has always been kind of like the noble class, Mm -hmm. especially in England. Mm -hmm. Um, And those kings who kind of managed their nobles well, you know, they had fairly prosperous reigns. um, And those who didn't always face the reality that, uh, I guess, like William the Conqueror (laughs) basically had a big family. And there were always a ton of uh, branches on his family tree. And at any point, any of them could swing over and take it, take back the crown. Right. Um, And that's what led to that. You know, the murder of that 71 year old woman, yeah, and, you know, Margaret fifth, Pohl. Yeah, Margaret Pohl. Uh, it's just, it's such a, a telling uh, instance, I guess, of the fact that everybody was kind of aware that that's where actual power came from. Mm-hmm. Um, but
0: however uneasy they were with the idea of usurping the power, deposing an anointed king, and I mean, uneasy where. Like, uneasy is the head that wears the crown, right? I mean, it's especially when that crown was stolen from a king who had the unwashable anointed oil of God on their head. I mean, you just cut it off again. Like, well, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's just the the anxieties were always there, even when that, and I can only, you know, when you talk about the masses and everything, like it, it definitely was not Um, I don't think it was far from their minds that the power they had was not something, at least anymore, after Richard II, it seems like that was a turning point. Yeah, exactly. That anybody could be deposed and anybody could sit on the throne. You know, Henry VII did not have the greatest claim. He had hardly so, any claim. Yeah. So, but, he,
1: but he did but it. But he did it. And then he reigned peacefully because that's what people wanted. Yeah. Um. And again, I'm sorry, I can't help it, but this reminded me so much of Game of Thrones. Uh, because the, the show and the books especially are so aware of the disparity between the medieval kind of understanding of where power comes from, from gods or God in the real world case. uh, And the actual reality of it comes at the end of a sword Mm. uh, based on who has the most of them or, you know, dragons, I guess. Um, And so uh, it's really, really interesting to me as, as an example of um, that disparity in action. And I think in some ways the, the game of Thrones, series and the books do a better job representing uh what the reality of that must have felt like to the people in that situation where they they have to pay maybe not maybe they do actually believe in in divine right of kings and and holy blood like they have in uh game of thrones you know uh the red woman can take blood and kill people with royal (laughs) blood and so forth uh you know like they, they might believe in that and it might even hold some sway over their lives, but in they always took the actions that they felt were right to do a very kind of humanist, materialistic understanding of the world. Henry VI is a shitty king, we need to replace him with a good king. And that was really what the Wars of the Roses kind of wound up being about. Um, and uh, so I think when we get back to Shakespeare on that, um, you get kind of, you're kind of in this in-between space where Shakespeare kind of, you you feel reading his history plays that he's aware of that, uh, I guess, dichotomy or um, conflict between, you know, the the pull for power and, you know, humans' basis needs to just rule over one another and also give their consent up up to their monarch uh, versus the Tudor propaganda aspect. So it's kind of in this, this interesting... Uh, kind of synthesis of these two different viewpoints in the Shakespearean text, which is really, really interesting. I think if you wanted more of the realistic how it actually was, you can go to George R. R. Martin uh, and take his thing. If you want to see kind of the higher idealized version, you can go to Shakespeare. And they're both really good at, at uh, expressing different ways of looking at that.
0: To be entirely fair though, I mean, HEO does have a really big budget. So if they're <laughs> doing anything really well, I think you just throw money at the problem. Uh, right? Yeah. Okay. That's it. No. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No. You should really read the books. They're good, Lindsay.
0: Have it be coward. So now we get to the fun part of the episode. The fun part. The bickering. Yes. Um. We we kind of questioned what kind of bickering we could have on an episode like this because we're we're dealing with historical topics and the, the history maybe is kind of settled on this. Can you debate history? <laughs> I don't well, know. Well, we're about to find out. We're going to we? find out because the question we've decided to tackle is who should have been king: Henry the Sixth or Edward the Fourth. Yeah. And I'm I'm going with Edward the Fourth, honestly. All right, Lindsay.
1: Explain to me why you're wrong. <laughs>
0: That's that's quite haughty of you. Um, well, aside from being uh, haughty, is a good a good word to use because Edward IV was a haughty Macoterson, as far as I can tell. Um, he was quite a good-looking king, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go for the good-looking guy over anybody else any day of the week. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I think the fact that he had this. Um, it, it, when you go back to Edward III and you look at his sons, um, yes, his elder two sons died, but they—they they, the lines didn't die with them. Yes, it died with Richard II for sure, but his second son Lionel, Duke of Clarence, had this this other line through his daughter. Yes, through his daughter Philippa, but um, but his—I guess what was it—son, uh, great, great. Great-granddaughter and Mortimer, great-granddaughter. If you're I going back to
1: great-granddaughters, Lindsay, it's not a strong <laughs> claim, I gotta say. No,
0: it's, it's still a claim. Descent from the, the second-born son is better than descent from the third-born son or anything beyond that. And Edward IV does have that in his back pocket, that he is descended from the second-born son of Edward the third and so that places his claim higher than anybody else's and i'm sorry the numbers don't lie two is better than three when you're talking about second ordinals ordinal numbers first is the best and second and so so six is is the
1: worst is what you're saying
0: well, if you're well, the sixth son, yes. Okay. But if you're the second son, your descendants, and the first son is dead, and all of his descendants are dead, the second son should reign. But this is where you get into, you know, <laughs> male-only primogeniture versus male preference primogeniture, and, and how we have females involved now. I mean, yeah. it's only recently. It was 2013, I believe, when the yeah, they changed, they the changed it in, the, in yeah. the House of Windsor now. Um, not only will—well, it'll be interesting. We'll get to this. Hold on. Um, <laughs> my, my train of thought is kind of going all over the place. (laughs) But you have there was the potential for um, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge to have a daughter who would assume the throne after her father William Mm
1: -hmm. uh, dies or abdicates, right? So it was Georgina instead of George. Yes, it would have been fine.
0: And as it is, um, Charlotte is not has not been displaced by Louis, so she is still retaining her place in the throne. Poor Prince Harry is all the way down.
1: Oh, poor him! But.
0: Anyway, um, uh-huh. and also what's interesting is is we have now this this modern notion of every time a woman was queen, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, upon their death, the house changed because the, the husband would give the name, the name. Or the in Elizabeth's case, the new house would. Elizabeth changed, well, her father actually changed that and said that all of their descendants will be Windsors. Winters. So it'll be interesting to find out if Charles will keep the Windsor name or if he'll go back to... Uh, changing it afterwards Battenberg or whatever it is that his father if you go back through Prince Philip's line Greek whatever I doubt it but I mean so these are very modern notions but I I do think that as a modern strong woman I'm going to say that that, uh, Lionel Duke of Clarence (laughs) Lionel Duke of Clarence's daughter Philippa of Clarence and her descendants are the reason that Edward IV has a much stronger claim to the English throne than any of his cousins okay also, he's hot. Okay.
1: I mean, sure. I'll, I'll grant you all that and just say... Henry Thank you. Sixth. We can end
0: the podcast right well, here.
1: <laughs> I really don't have much more to... I mean, that that's a very reasoned, considered argument Thank about you. multiple lines of descent, Which is, is all bullshit, take. of course, <laughs> because uh, once again... That's not why anybody should be king. A king should be made because they have the will of the people underneath them to rule, uh, which Henry the Sixth, by all means, did not have in the least. So how uh, <laughs> can you
0: argue that he should be sitting on the throne? Because
1: there should be no king is basically what I'm saying. So <laughs> having a bunch of nobles come together and decide like, hey, you know what? You go handle the war in France and we'll look after tax policy and we'll cover, you know, any public works that need to be done and you guys can go train. That's how uh, a much more reasonable government was done. So that first twenty years of Henry the Six reign, perfection in my so, mind. So he you- was- he was and there was a strong woman in the background there. You should yes, really like that. I lindsay. do. I Margaret really do Anjou like that. She was, was my girl. She was she was hitting it for, for her country. So her newfound country, she was French, she was helping the English monarchy survive this terrible monarch. It's a
0: real Kumbaya movement right there. <laughs> exactly.
1: And honestly, I would have been fine if that would have kept up. Of course it couldn't because there was no power there was no there was no institution in place to replace a terrible king. There was no there was no house of I mean there was the there was the House of Lords. There was a parliament, but it was, you know, not a real thing. And it was only called when the king wanted it. Uh, no, you can't answer your question yet, God damn it. Uh, so, yeah, my answer is Henry VI because he was the worst king. Therefore, he should have been king for as long as possible. Now you may ask. I,
0: I just I just want to clarify. So you're saying a house of parliament slash house of lords or both in combination with mm-hmm. one another would be better than ruling by divine right. Yeah. I have one word for you.
1: Theresa May. That's two words. My one
0: (laughs) word was Brexit, but you you kind of ruined my moment there, (laughs) you asshole. But yes, do we want to turn this into a Brexit (laughs) podcast?
1: Uh, yeah, what, what, do you, what do you think the chances are? Elizabeth just comes in and says, no, you're not leaving.
0: <laughs> I don't think she's allowed to. I think they talked about it. I think she wants to. I don't think she's allowed to. I think it's constitutionally barred for the I, Queen to get They don't
1: have a constitution. They well, have a bunch know, of patchworks but... from Magna Carta to now. Okay. And that's part of the problem. And one of them that's I'm pretty fine. sure says the Queen can decide whatever the fuck she wants.
0: Well, you know what? If they're <laughs> going to bring up some obscure 16th or 15th or 17th yeah. century doctrine that says that a bill can't be put before Parliament twice in the same sitting without substantial exactly. changes being made I have no problem John Burko is going to go and find some 13th century thing that'll allow Elizabeth to step in
1: and revoke Article 50 I mean can you imagine the lawyers that would have to try and parse through 700 years of common law we're we're entering season
0: 3 of Brexit (laughs) Uh, I mean by the time season 20 comes on no one's going to be watching it's going to be like General Hospital right (laughs) but but I'm willing to let it ride out because I'm you're there for
1: the drama I mean it's great okay
0: So when Brexit happens or whatever and this podcast is suddenly this episode of this podcast is suddenly very outdated. We're yeah. going to listen to this and cringe that we allowed this. To yeah, it happen. might even happen
1: before we air this one, actually. May, so we might knows? end up cutting all this. But for now, I enjoy the Brexit commentary.
0: Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say goodnight till it be morrow. So I guess that ends our, our discussion of the Wars of the Roses. Obviously, yeah. um, we've been talking for an hour and a bit, but um, nothing nothing deep has occurred. No. I think we, we each read books combined. We spent about 20 hours researching this. There's <laughs> <Nothing>? <laughs> the people who Trevor Royal and Dan Jones, and um, we mentioned Lucy Worsley, and there are a Everybody. lot of other... Uh, historians of much greater caliber who have spent their lives researching this stuff. There is so much more you could go into so much more depth you could get into yeah. um, going all the way back to Edward III and, and continuing it on through the house of Stuart and into the house of Orange. But yeah. um, but we wanted
1: to provide our context for our future episodes exactly. about these plays. And that's what we are going to return to is now with this backing of the, the history in mind, as we read through the plays and talk about them, we'll, we'll probably return to some of the points in here about the history and how this character was changed into this way and this is not accurate and so on and so forth. So we just wanted to provide that context for uh, through this episode.
0: And it, I mean, it is going to come up because um, the we, we briefly mentioned the tetralogies. Um, Shakespeare wrote two tetralogies and kind of two quick bursts of creative uh, momentum I guess and and 1590 to 1592 was when he wrote this first one which is the Henry first and second and third part Henry the sixth and Richard the third which if you want to think about it as the um, uh, Star Trek these are the later sorry (laughs) if you want to think about this as Star Wars these are episodes four five and six yeah really yeah but in four parts. Yeah. Um. And later in his career, he wrote the he first tetralogy, the, prequels, the major yeah. one, which was the first and second part, Henry the Fourth, Henry the Fifth, and Richard the Second, yeah. um, which predates that. So that's kind of the the prequels yeah. in Star Wars. So um, he but wrote they're, these. They're actually two... better
1: than Henry the Sixth for the most part. But anyway, they yeah,
0: are. Like... They're they're much more interesting. And he he was older when he wrote them. I mean, a lot of people suspect that. Um, a very young Shakespeare had written Henry the, the Sixth, yeah. so he was maybe still a teenager when he was writing these. Yeah, or plays, he had or help
1: or something, and it's exactly. not entirely in his voice. So,
0: so those two tetralogies plus um, Henry the Eighth, if you want to look at that, or um, there there are other plays that he had a hand in writing, but those eight plays are the ones that concern primarily concern the Wars of the Roses. So, as we talk about those episodes. Uh, Or sorry, as we talk about those plays, Mm -hmm. you can refer back to this episode or um, seek out some of your own research. The two books that we read, we would highly recommend that. We'll throw them up, links to buy those on our um, website, um, as well as some of the YouTube documentaries that we watched that we found particularly interesting. Including one that that may challenge the idea that the Windsors should be sitting on the throne of England nice. at all, which yes. all has its seeds back in the Wars of the Roses, it's such a juicy part of the English history.
1: Indeed. So thank you for joining us. Uh, we hope you'll listen in uh, next episode as we tackle the first of the tetralogy plays, Henry the Sixth, Part One, which is not the first play, but we'll get into that next week. Not next week. Not next, next week. Episode. Next episode.
0: You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix.
1: If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at Bixpod,
0: on Facebook at facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at thebixpod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.